This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we just heard, Calvin is still making its way past the Big Island, and stormy weather seems to be what's in store for the rest of us here in the Hawaiian chain. We check in with HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactal to talk about a major construction project that will affect Kalapapa's power grid. She happens to be on the Friendly Isle this morning. So how's the weather over there? Where I live, it's windy and rainy. From what I hear in Kanakakai, it hasn't started raining yet, but it looks like the weather is still moving through. So we'll see what the day brings. And so I know it's it's pretty gusty over here on Oahu. Uh, and I know that they're, you know, just concerned, um, you know, because we could lose power. Absolutely. Here as well at my house, it's pretty insanely windy, actually. So, uh, you know, a power outage could happen and we've got things charged just in case. And, and yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, your story today is about Kalapapa's electrical system. So what's the skinny on that? So Kalapapa's electrical system was installed back in 1969, and they've done a lot of maintenance. But at this point, it just needs a complete overhaul. The community experiences frequent outages, and they're planning for major electrical upgrades and full maintenance in 2025. So it's a couple years away, but there's been so much planning that's gone into this process. It's a federally funded project. It will cost more than $15 million, and the project includes replacement of over 100 power poles, 39,000 feet of electrical cable, which is kind of mind-blowing, new transformers, new pole-mounted light fixtures, and a whole bunch of other things and maintenance. Here is Nancy Holman, who is superintendent of the Kalaupapa National Historical Park. The Kalaupapa community is a pretty isolated community, if you can imagine a peninsula that's isolated from the rest of the island by a several thousand foot poly. Even just getting power to the community, let alone distributed around the community, is not an easy feat. The power grid itself is quite old at this point. It's got a long, colorful history at the location, but essentially this project would overhaul that entire distribution system. So everything from the power poles to the transformers to the lines themselves will be reviewed and looked at and replaced if necessary, which is pretty critical. The system as it stands now is pretty unreliable. We have failures of transformers, um, pretty regular or other various switches or parts in the system that may have sections of the community without power for generally a short period of time. And, you know, it's been a while since I've, I've been down to Kalapapa, but, you know, they're overdue. They really need an overhaul over there. They do. And she talked about how important just for such an isolated community that regular maintenance is, which they normally do, but this is, it's just, like you said, really time for an overhaul. So there's an electrical line that goes over that poly several thousand feet down that connects Kalapapa to Topside Molokai's electrical grid. And the project won't actually be working on that portion. It's rather the distribution system within the settlement itself that they will be looking at. And this comes with such a set of Interesting logistical challenges for Kalaupapa that many people might not think about. It's, you know, an electrical upgrade system might seem sort of like a simple project, but it's certainly not for Kalaupapa. Many people may not know, but Kalaupapa gets one barge per year. And this is kind of crazy to think about. It brings large equipment, non-perishable foods, supplies, other large items that can't be flown in by plane on a more regular basis. So that delivery each summer has to last the settlement the entire year. And there's only a narrow window in the summer that that barge can dock at Kalaupapa's Harbor when swells on Molokai's North Shore aren't too big. And it often gets pushed back several times each year because of weather. And there's, there's just this really narrow window where they can dock. And that poses logistical challenges for a big project like this. Here's what Holman says will be the solution to that. Right now, we're utilizing one barge a year to bring in big supplies to Kalaupapa. And this project has a lot of materials, about 110 power poles. That takes up a lot of space on a barge, light fixtures, the cables, all sorts of things. So this project includes having the contractor contract their own barge to bring in supplies because it would take over the annual barge space that we would need with the state to be able to just operate and manage normal operations, let alone the, a construction project at this scale. 
Oh my gosh, I can just imagine. I mean, I've covered, you know, the barge day down there and, you know, people need their their washers and their dryers, you know, the those appliances. And so um, that's a good thing that they can, uh, you know, contract out for another barge run. Yeah, exactly. It's it's certainly much needed. As you said, the amount of materials that this project requires would just really take over that barge and there wouldn't be any room for anything else. So that's good that they're bringing in a second barge, but also just adds layers to that logistical challenge. So another challenge for Kolopapa infrastructure in the settlement in general is just its geographical location and the exposure to the elements that that brings. Holman talked about how that makes maintenance of infrastructure really difficult. You have this peninsula sticking out into the ocean. So we have lots of salt air, we have high winds, we have termites. So there's all sorts of things actively working against the infrastructure at this location. Everything's so exposed to the elements. So things are just generally deteriorating. And, you know, as much as things have been maintained to a certain level, at some point, you just your materials start to fail. And so this is really an effort to do a big push to rehabilitate the whole system versus bits and pieces of the system itself. Yeah, I mean, I just know... You know, when we've communicated with the National Park Service people, you know, the telephone service is very spotty, too. So communications are, are a tough one, you know, for that uh, part of the island. It is for sure. And just the importance of having those type of communications in an isolated community like that um, just really can't be underestimated. So this process has taken years of planning. She said almost a decade, I think. And an environmental assessment has just been released for this project. It's currently in the public comment phase until next week, I believe. And another thing that was interesting, Holman noted that these upgrades focus on the distribution system itself, not the generation portion of electricity. So how electricity gets from point A to point B, not necessarily how it's produced. And right now there's a huge initiative on Topside Molokai toward renewable energy, but that's not part of this particular project in Kalapapa, um, the environmental assessment does note that renewable energy options were explored for the water pump house, which is located deep in a valley on Molokai's North Shore um, adjacent to Kalapapa, but that that posed logistical challenges. For example, the valley is just too shaded to support solar energy for pumping the water. So this project is really focused on the distribution system rather than the generation. Yeah, well, and lots of lots of challenges, you know, for that community because it it is, you know, um, in a remote area and hard to get to. For sure, and so right now there's two main entities operating a Kalapapa. The Department of Health operates primarily to care for the patient residents who are choosing to still live there, and the National Park Service does most of the maintenance, the facilities maintenance, um, care of the cultural and historic sites. They're the entity that will remain as stewards of the peninsula once the patient residents are no longer there. So that's a big transition piece long-term that, that everyone's involved in planning for. It's interesting to note that this electricity uh, electrical system is actually owned by the Department of Health, and it's the National Park Service that's responsible for maintenance of it. So it's just part of that complicated partnership among so many different agencies down in Kualapapa involved in keeping Kalopapa what it is and keeping it operational now and into the future. Yes. And I know they've got their master plan that they've been working on. So yeah, we'll just see what happens, but uh, good luck, uh, you know, with this construction project over there and, uh, and don't blow away and stay dry. <laughs> Thank you. You as well. All right. We have been talking to Catherine Kluwit-Pakdahl uh, there on Molokai. Uh, to read her stories, uh, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Another public corruption scandal that is the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra is on the line today. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. It's good to be here. Yes. So this was just old-fashioned sniffing around. <laughs> you uh, you were just uh, doing some research. You, you uh, kind of uh, dug this up. Right. I uh, 
you know, file public records requests in the course of my work for Civil Beat. And um, one of the things I asked the city for was a list of employees that had been put on leave due to investigations into their conduct. And so I uncovered something at the Department of Customer Services. Uh, this is the department that uh, manages our safety checks for our cars and um, you know, we're required to do those inspections every year and get our new sticker and everything. Um, and apparently three clerks at the city um, were working with car dealerships, used car dealers, um, to just kind of approve their safety check records without them having to actually get the inspection. Um, and they were caught doing this by a city supervisor, uh, according to the records I got. And uh, ultimately they left their jobs. It's interesting. So the bosses uncovered this themselves, but the city didn't tell us about it. That's right. That that often happens. And, uh, you know, that's why we're here to do what we do. And we file these public records requests. And we're thankful to have a public records law that uh, allows us to get this information. So, yeah, the city did write up a report on the incident and it really shed light on what happened here. So uh, according to that report, is pretty interesting. They said that the, the benefit for the car dealers in the situation is to get off the hook for having to do any repairs that might become necessary after an inspection. And um, as for what the clerks got out of it, it's unclear whether they were getting bribes or something of the sort. Um, but uh, they, the report suggested that this was kind of a formal arrangement and that they were working together. Do we know if they approached, uh, I don't know, the FBI or, or law enforcement to say, hey, you know, something's not right here and maybe using their resources they could find out more? I did ask the city that. They said they didn't loop in law enforcement um, and they really kept this examination to a limited sample um, that they audited. Um, they said they don't believe that the problem's more widespread than these three former employees, but, um, you know, anything's possible i suppose but they said they just want to move forward and whoever wasn't inspected before will be due within a year's time anyway so hopefully any problems are, are caught then and hopefully no one gets in an accident um in a car that isn't safe yeah i mean when you think that you know all of us have to do the right thing and go through the whole ring and roll and get things fixed and yet these companies were allowed to uh to to get around this Right. I mean, I think that's the frustration of so many people, especially given what we've heard about the permitting department and the bribery that's gone on there. Um, you know, we just hear about these instances of special treatment. And um, it is frustrating for people who do go about things the right way to know that there's people working around the system. And so what about the names of these, you know, bad eggs? If they lost their jobs. So with the public records law, um, we're not allowed to know the names of people unless they've been suspended or fired for their misconduct. And all three of these folks um, did voluntarily resign um, before that could happen. Um, there was a name, though, in this, this, what's called the metadata of one of the documents I got. Um, and it had the name of someone. Uh, her name is Rhonda Omalsa. Um, and I did call her and she denied wrongdoing and said she resigned for reasons unrelated to this. But, um, you know, the city has a different story. And then the car companies? Um, I did get the names of those. Uh, it's Bayview Auto Sales, CarPro LLC, and VIP Towing. Um, so if you bought a car from any of those businesses in the last year or so, you might want to give them a call and ask if your safety check was legit. Well, is the city saying, you know, that they're tightening up their controls over, uh, you know, the system so this can't happen again? They are. Um, they're taking several steps to upgrade their very antiquated technology. And they said they're going to boost ethics training from every other year to every year to really hit home to the employees that this should not be going on. All right. Well, we're glad that uh, they uncovered it. Um, but, yeah, you just wonder how long it's really been going on. But thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, to uh, read this story, head to civilbeat.org.
you know, it's only been about two weeks since paid riders began jumping on Skyline. We wondered how many workers from Pearl Harbor were actually taking advantage of the subsidized holo card. Four buses are scheduled with IDs checked in the morning before workers get on the city bus to go into the shipyard. And the buses that I observed in the afternoon coming in from the Pearl Harbor shipyard last week were largely empty. But yesterday, one bus had about a dozen passengers. And that's where I found one worker who drives his electric car on the west side, parks it, hops on the train to the Halava station. Uh, Daniel Bumaluk says he's happy that the service works for him. Uh, I get on um, in the morning at Keonei Station, which is the uh, UH West Oahu, make my way to Alava, take the PH8 bus to go to work at Pearl Harbor. And so how does that work for you? Uh, it's working pretty good. Um, when I get into town in the morning, um, there's usually a bus already waiting, and usually a guard is checking our IDs before we get on base. So it makes it really easy because we just zoom right past the gates. Um, there's no delay, except for, of course, sitting in traffic. And so where does the bus drop you off? How, how close to your front door? Uh, pretty much uh, bus drops me off within about a one minute walk to my office. So it works out and in the afternoon I board it one minute walk back to the bus stop and usually the bus ride is about 15-20 minutes and then I make my way to Halava and go back to Kionai. And then how do you get home? Uh, I drive home. So I basically backtrack. So I live in Eva Beach uh, but I decide to uh, park my car at UH West Oahu because it's a lot brighter and more comfortable parking my car there, so make my way from that station over all the way to uh, Halava. And uh, there seem to be more people on the bus. Yeah, there's um, definitely a bigger interest now. A lot of people are realizing that, you know, getting on the rail and taking the PHE bus, you know, and there's also multiple buses, so every 10 minutes, you know, it seems to be a bus um, coming around, so definitely been helpful for a lot of people. And so uh, the co-workers that you jump on the bus with, I mean, they're okay with leaving their cars or they get dropped off? These for like the one or two people that get off at the same station. I've noticed that they're walking back to their cars, but yeah, I'm not sure about the other people, but you know, for at least the people that I you know see on the bus that work here pro, they seem to be okay with parking their cars out there. And so what's the advantage of being on the train? Uh, reliable, fast transportation. Um, I don't have to deal with, you know, riding or driving rather. Uh, people cutting me off in the morning. I can just relax, go on my phone for about an hour, uh, for you know about half an hour. You know. Yeah, it's free Wi-Fi. Yeah, free Wi-Fi. Pretty much relaxing. I don't have to stress out, you know, in the morning. Even getting through, getting to the gate, um, I don't have to worry about, you know, really waiting in traffic. I mean, I'm waiting, but I'm actually distracted because I'm on my phone. On the Air Force side of the base, um, on the Hickam side, they're doing uh, construction on Kunz, uh, I think it's Kunz Bridge. So that's the bridge that goes over the main gate or for Hickam. They did have to go ahead and uh, detour some traffic, but they're doing a, a better job. They actually have a, usually an airman or a, a Navy police officer directing traffic. So it's, they're trying to uh, really control traffic getting off of the base. So, so it's been minimal delay. Um, yeah, minimal as, as possible. They've, they've kind of been realizing that, it, you know, having that stop sign there kind of jams things up. So they're actually having, um, they're actively having a police officer um, direct traffic uh, off of the base. How many people were on the bus with you today? Uh, I would probably say about about a dozen people on this bus. Um, there, there's actually multiple buses throughout, you know, but this seems to be the the most um, the most crowded, I guess. Yeah, but it is growing. And another worker from the west side says the train cuts about a half hour from his commute to his job site in Kalihi. John Moises just wishes it had extended hours. He gets off at 2.30 in the morning. I came from Ewa Beach. I'm going to work. And so you jumped on a bus from Ewa Beach, jumping on the train now? At Don Quixote. And then where do you go? Work near Kalihi Center. And so you're waiting for another bus? Yeah, the 1L. And then what time do you knock off work? 2.30. So it's kind of hard for you because the rail doesn't run past like what, seven o'clock at night? Yeah. So how do you get home? With my brother. He works also there and he drives. And another rider gave it high marks. Uh, Jesse Malapit lives in Halava Heights. He has trouble walking and gets around on a scooter. He says it gives him freedom to get around, and he is grateful for the Skyline. He's been using it regularly since the first weekend it opened. I like it. It's good. I can't wait till the thing goes out of the way. 
move further. Into town? Yeah. So where have you been going with the scooter? The Pearl Ridge downtown. I like it a lot. Have you seen very many other people with wheelchairs or, or walkers or anything like that? No, no. The last time I seen that plan, a lot of people was 4th of July when it was free. Other than that, ever since you got to pay, I guess. Not too many people ride them. Cannot wait to boy when school starts. If school starts, I hope get more riders. So what grade would you give it? I'd give them about a nine. Nine out of ten? Nine out of ten. Okay. Anything you would change? The only bad thing I don't like about it is there's no bathrooms. According to what the mayor was saying, there is bathrooms available. You got to get the key. But I tried a couple of times to, you know, see if I can use the bathroom. They tell me, I got to go use that funky red one across the street. Oh, the porta potty Yep. And that thing's nasty. Other than that, I, 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 love, I love the train. Sometimes I get boring. I just get on the bus, come down here, ride the rail, like, go home. Not bad for about, a, about an hour. Gives you freedom just to get out and about. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the City Transportation Services Department says it's not too worried about the numbers from Pearl Harbor at this point since it's early on. It says it tracks ridership quarterly and expects to see a bump when school starts in a few weeks. Uh, Deputy Director John Nuichi says that the city has been working with the military for the past two years and is gearing up for the hiring of a thousand new shipyard workers in the next year for a $2 million construction project. The military says parking is already a challenge now and it's in talks with the city to accommodate those additional workers. Uh, but not everybody is happy with the changes brought by rail. We also heard from uh, a bus rider, Mike, who left this on our talkback line. Rail supporters have always said it's about giving people more options, yet in this skyline, they've decided to discontinue the A route, which is arguably the most popular, liked express route that Oahu had. College students going to UH we were able to go from Waipahu and further west all the way to University of Hawaii on one ride. Many of those college students will be dismayed and angry and disgruntled when they come back next month and find out that they need a minimum of three or four connections to get to the University of Hawaii when it formerly just one. It not only affects students, but also affects people employed who had jobs anywhere along the route that the A ran. And most adversely affected are veterans because the A was the only bus that runs along Camp Highway in Pearl City and pulls directly into the Kalihi Middle Street Station. That is the only connection point for the 301 bus, which connects people at that location with Tripler Medical Center and Honolulu VA. As a veteran, that was my direct link to the VA. Now those people who used to be able to ride directly into Kalihi Middle Street Station are told you can take the 51, 40, or 42, all right? However, you will get off at the first bus stop on Dillingham, which is several hundred feet from the Clean Middle Street Station, walk over substandard sidewalks, all right? Uh, it's, it's just outrageous and a travesty. It's also an inequity. There will be immense problems next month, larger numbers of people waiting at bus stops along the route that A used to run, uh, with buses pulling up to those bus stops already full of people standing room only. Uh, the whole reason they discontinued the A is the rail defenders were worried about losing face, that they would be proven wrong on ridership. So they figured, what's the best way to up the ridership on the skyline, right? And that was to discontinue the A. So really call it subtle coercion, the skyline. It's not as great as some people are singing. My name is Mike, and I live in Pearl City, and I'm a veteran adversely affected by this spy. And that was a snapshot of transit riders sounding off as they navigate the new Skyline system and the connections.
Support for HPR comes from the Arn and Ruth Worchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arn and Ruth Worchick Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Library's Kona at folkhawaii.com. Today on The Daily. Last week, for the first time in U.S. history, federal regulators approved the sale of a birth control pill without a prescription in what could be a transformative decision at a time when abortion is becoming more restricted. I'm Natalie Kitroeff. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Raising children can be challenging for parents, especially with the way communication evolves in our society. Then throw in the specific challenges that come with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or dyslexia or a gifted child, and many parents feel they're not equipped for the job. Asset School on Oahu is aiming to help with that. They're offering two free workshops to help parents communicate more effectively with their children and better manage ADHD symptoms. Dr. Elsa Lee is the school's clinical director. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Dr. Lee in our studio to discuss why these workshops are needed. Why do you think that these workshops are so important? Well, I think this kind of information has always been important and crucial in helping parents learn how to communicate, support, nurture, right, to work with their children. But I think parents have been increasingly mindful and aware these days. I think the life during COVID and post-pandemic lives have really changed things for better or for worse. A lot of children are dealing with the post-pandemic adjustment issues, being stuck at home for two solid years or more for a couple, you know, some other children. That period of challenge really brings out a lot of struggles that parents may otherwise not even be aware of had it not been for that. The pandemic has had a significant impact on all of us in a lot of different ways. When we think about something like communication, how did the pandemic impact the way that communication is evolving, the way that we see communication? I'm thinking back to a lot of the clinical work that I've been doing with parents, families, children. And I think during COVID and even post-pandemic, like, like I was saying before, when children were stuck at home, parents are dealing, were dealing with a lot of confrontations, a lot of arguments, tension, um, a lot of why can't you get, get your act together? Why can't you focus on your Zoom lessons? You know, And children have no other resources to answer that kind of question you know, being stuck in front of a computer, being expected to sit in front of a computer for like six, seven, eight hours, even with breaks, that's that's not age appropriate. And so I think that kind of brings out a lot of difficulties for parents not knowing how to communicate their expectations and children not knowing that they're heard, you know, and what they do will probably was, you know, I'm just going to say no, I'm going to defy, I'm going to oppose to what you say. And so I think a lot of the conflicts really start emerging or they started coming to surface a lot more significantly compared to, let's say, pre-pandemic when children had the option of going out. And things are now, of course, changing, going back to normal. Um, but I think parents have become so aware of these challenges that they thought, wow, you know, this is hard. How can I talk to my kid so that, you know, he or she can listen to me? And we've seen in recent years that the maintenance and the attention to mental health has increased. It's, it's become much more important. How does this emerging emphasis on mental health, how does that impact how communication is evolving? I think it all comes down to building, wanting to build a relationship, right? Why do we communicate? We communicate because we want to have our messages or ideas, thoughts, feelings communicated or you know, received by the other party, right? So it's always a two-way street. How is it important or how does it relate to mental health? So if people are able to communicate, receive and give, especially in the parental child context, the child will be able to benefit from being understood. And we know that for all human beings, any ages, being understood, being listened to, right? You know, having the empathy of someone is really key to their well-being. And plenty of research has shown that parent-child relationships, positive, warm, nurturing parent-child relationships actually do have a strong impact and influence on their long-term well-being, mental health, depression, anxiety, their ability to trust in their environment and build future relationships as they turn into adults. 
there's a line in a song. I think it's an Alanis Morissette song that says that we're just looking for somebody to catch our drift, right? That's looking a good for, way to put it. for somebody that understands us, that that we can communicate well with. And communication has its own kind of set of challenges. And then raising children comes with its set of challenges. And then you add in things like dyslexia or language-based learning differences or being gifted. And for some parents, sometimes that's more than they have the experience or the education to handle. What are some examples of what parents can learn if they have a special needs or a gifted child in the communication workshop? So there are some basics, fundamental skills that we would like to teach parents regardless of diagnosis or condition, because we do want to make this as applicable to as many as possible. And we certainly will, if we have time, we'll also hone in on specific conditions and how parents can support their kids, you know, through communication. But I think you know, if they're able to learn basic strategies as in, well, when your kid is talking to you, how can you show your kid that you're actually listening, right? You're not saying something just because you want to get your point across. And I think a lot of parents, myself included as a parent, you know, when I take off my psychologist hat, I only have a minute. I'm going to tell you everything that I need you to listen to so that you do what I want you to do. But that's really not communication, right? So helping parents understand the signs behind why communicate? What's the whole point? How is this going to help? And most importantly, let's find ways to apply so that they can actually take home some strategies and start applying them right off the bat. And shifting gears a little bit, the second workshop that Asset School is offering is focused on managing attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in children. Understanding what ADHD is, is I think the first step to managing it. Can you talk about how ADHD manifests and impacts children? Sure. It's a question that we get asked all the time mm -hmm. because ADHD is so quote unquote popular these days. Kids go onto the internet and they look up the definition themselves and they self-diagnose. It's funny because when I see teenagers, I mean, especially this past year when, you know, there's so much influence by social media, children look for all the information that they want to see or they believe that, oh, these are my symptoms. So I probably do have it. And so they sell, start self-diagnosing. Parents do the same. There are different types of ADHD. A lot of people don't realize that when they hear the term ADHD, they think hyperactivity, they think impulsivity, they think behavioral problems. But there are actually a couple of different types. But the main three types would be what I would call the inattentive type in short. And then there's the hyperactive and impulsive type. And then there's also the combined presentation. So for a child to be diagnosed with, let's say, ADHD inattentive type, we're looking mainly at their inability to focus, to pay attention, the inability to kind of stay on task and concentrate on what they're doing. So, you know, you see a lot of that in classrooms when they're asked to do something that is boring, it's tedious, it's repetitive. They zone out a lot, you know, and these kids sometimes get under or missed diagnosed because teachers can't pick them up, especially if they can mask their symptoms really well. Sometimes these children don't cause any behavioral problems and they just kind of sit there and they wander off and daydream. And then because they're such good kids on the outside, teachers don't realize, parents sometimes don't even realize, and they think that, oh, you're not just not trying hard enough because your grades are not showing, not knowing that, you know, they've been sitting there all day thinking about something else when they're supposed to be learning, right? So if the information never got in, then when you try to get them to tell you what they've learned, it's never there in the first place and they won't be able to regurgitate that. And then the other type would be the hyperactive and impulsive type. And so that's more of what I think our society understands somehow because it's so observable. It's something that's very tangible, right? The child's not able to sit still. They have trouble kind of, you know, just keeping their hands to themselves. They have trouble to not fidget. So a lot of movement, a lot of impulsive decisions, you know, blurting out answers, not raising their hands when they're supposed to talk. So things like that. So you know, I think part of what we really want to deliver through the second workshop is to help parents understand that ADHD actually has many different faces and the manifestation can look completely different. And so by, you know, identifying the different signs, not to self-diagnose, but at least to know that, oh, gee, maybe this is ADHD, maybe there is some kind of underlying reason why my child is not performing would be, a, I think, an important first step in helping the child and, you know, to support them. So, back to the communication piece, that the parent is actually able to understand the child's struggle before assuming that you must be tr not trying hard enough because you're struggling in school. What are some of the examples 
of what they'll learn in the workshop. So in the ADHD workshop, our focus would be on identifying symptoms, talking about the science behind that, how it is often diagnosed, and from an assessment evaluation point of view, what the process looks like. Because, you know, at where I work at ACIDS in our testing center, that's primarily what we do as well. Provide, you know, of course, recommendations and ideas on how to help parents, but the testing piece is often one way in helping parents confirm, so quote unquote confirm that, oh, this is actually what my child struggles with. So the process of diagnosis, the process of intervention and ideas, things that parents can take home with in helping their child at home or in school. How can they communicate their expectations in school? What would the teachers like to know to help, you know, better work with their child? Can you share the information for the workshops? I, I believe the first one is coming up on Thursday. That's right. So the first one will be on Thursday at 6 o'clock to 7.15. And the next one would be on August 10th. Also at 6 to 7.15 p.m., both workshops are free and open to the community, and they're going to be conducted through Zoom. The first workshop is the effective communication workshop, and the second one is how to manage ADHD, right? That's right. Anything else you want to share with our listeners? I guess the last thing I really wanted to highlight is that building a positive, warm, nurturing relationship with your kids is really the most important thing. If you get that down, everything else would become so much easier and they don't always have to be a battle. So relationship first, everything else will come naturally. Dr. Elsa Lee, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Elsa Lee, the clinical director for Asset School, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to the workshops on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll learn about the Euclid Space Telescope and its mission to map the universe. We'll hear how land-based telescopes in Hawaii are helping the project by mapping data to convert black and white 2D images from Euclid into full color. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission with guidance on how to help keep families safe at home, such as placing carbon monoxide alarms in the hallway outside of bedroom areas and testing them regularly. More at cpsc.gov. Sarah Vogel is a Native Hawaiian sex educator on the Big Island and is the founder of Lady Bits in Leadership. She's a Fulbright Fellow headed to Vancouver Island for the year, researching how colonization affects perceptions of the body and how an indigenous lens enables a different view to sex education. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with Vogel about how we can transform sex education to better serve our communities. What does an indigenous lens or indigenous approach to sex education look like? Really, it's a two-part thing. It's decolonization and it's indigenous education. So the decolonization is understanding that how we view sex today is influenced by forces that happen and colonization that happened a long, long time ago. Indigenous peoples of North America, of what is now Canada, of Hawaii, of other places across the Pacific, didn't always used to view their bodies and sexualities in a negative or oppressed lens. In fact, we have examples of polyamorous relationships, so people kind of having multiple partners, co-parenting relationships, and having open relationships. We, of course, understand here in Hawaii that transgender or maybe someone who identifies as mahu is something that has always been there. In North America, you know, two-spirit folks, two-spirit individuals have been around. Our society pre-colonization was not as oppressive and was more celebratory and understood 
the beauty of our bodies and the beauty of our healthy, intimate relationships. Not to say that they were perfect for sure, but we need to understand how that is so far from how we look at our bodies today. Right. And so there is a piece of that. And then the indigenous lens is adding the idea of what did we know about our bodies? What were our cultural values before colonization? And can we incorporate that and infuse that into a modern sex ed curriculum today? And as of now, I haven't seen many models at all that really address sex education from an indigenous lens. And so when I applied for the Fulbright to conduct research, I thought this, especially working in Hawaii, this would be a perfect segue for my passions as well as what our community needs to become a healthier, more socially just community. And do you think that then the sex ed might be adjusted according to a student's locale in terms of adaptation of indigenous ideas? So would sex ed in Arizona, let's say, would it potentially look different than the sex education that a student might receive here in Hawaii? Absolutely. I think what would be ideal at the end of my Fulbright research fellowship is that there's a model that depending on wherever you are, you can use this model to adjust your sexual story, right? And so at the end of the day, everyone's story is going to be different because everyone has different cultural norms, different experiences with trauma, different religious upbringing, et cetera. And so what I really want to develop is something that's empowering for students to use to really critically analyze how they learned about sex what feels good to them, what feels yucky to them, and how can they redefine their story using some of these cultural norms and values? How can they deconstruct the way that they've learned toxic narratives about their bodies and instead develop a empowering framework around their sexuality? I'm very curious, too, because isn't this also potentially paralleling some of the ideas of sex ed in the Scandinavian countries, let's say like Denmark or Sweden, Norway, Iceland, where there might be indigeneity would be playing into their idea of sex education is my guess, despite like sort of almost superficial appearances, right? Because they have a very low pregnancy rate. Sex ed is just accepted. People understand sexuality within younger populations and are quite accepting of it. I'm wondering how that plays into an idea of colonization. How is that adapted? What might that say too? I mean, the reality is I'm just at the tip of the iceberg of research now. And so the Scandinavian countries will definitely come up because they are a model for healthy sexual education. Everyone looks to them as what is working there and how did they do it? Now, this is a very culturally, <laughs> sex is learned in a cultural context and unraveling culture is going to be incredibly difficult. From the beginning, our country has been influenced by colonization and by the harm done to indigenous peoples, and it's no different here in Hawaii. And so we have had hundreds and hundreds of years of understanding ourselves in a relationship to violence and in relation to segregation, in relation to sexist policies. I mean, our history and Scandinavian history are so different. It'll be interesting in my research to see how they may compare to one another and what lessons we can take. But ultimately, we're going to have to create something new for ourselves that works for our communities and our history. And is there anything that you would maybe want to share in terms of your personal journey, how I know you're a parent, how you might be thinking of trying to rewrite the narrative personally within your family about sex ed versus for, for your own children versus potentially the way that you learned about sexuality in your body? Yeah, so I grew up in going to school in Kahuku, Hawaii, and the culture around Kahuku is very influenced by the Mormon culture. And I love my Mormon folks. My best friends growing up were Mormon. But inevitably, even though I didn't identify as Mormon, I inherited a lot of that body negativity, that sexual shame 
that came with the Mormon culture. You know, I grew up with lessons of you save your virginity until you're married. Being naked is, you know, or showing parts of your body is sinful. I kissed a boy once and the next day he repented and it was, you know, it was a consensual kiss and I was made to feel like, wow, am I a slut? You know, these are the things that they were hard for me to unlearn. When I got to college, you know, as many, many females experienced and and male identified folks, and I don't want to forget our trans friends as well, but like most victims are women. And I really want to emphasize that because it's important for us to name it. When I went to college, you know, experiencing sexual coercion in my early relationship, experiencing rape by a friend when I was over intoxicated and too intoxicated to consent, it influenced and impacted the way that I saw myself, my body, the way that I started to question, was this my fault? I brought this on myself. I mean, most victims will tell me I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have worn this. I shouldn't have drank so much. It breaks my heart because those are literally the messages I told myself 15 years ago in college. Since then, I've learned it's not your fault. You didn't drink too much. This shouldn't have happened to you. But this is still the narrative that children and and young adults today are carrying with them, that it is their fault. For me, as a mother of a young boy, I will be lying if I said I didn't look at him when I realized he was a boy and think to myself, oh, my God. Is he going to be a statistic? Is he going to be someone who harms another person? And we, of course, never want that to be the case, right? But it did cross my mind working in this field and knowing the statistics. What I'm doing to change the world for him and for the children of our generation, for the adults who are listening to the work that I do, is flipping the narrative. This is not a shameful topic. In fact, this is something I'm going to talk about all the time. I'm going to talk about it on social media. I'm going to talk about it on my podcast. I'm going to talk about it through my research. I literally present about the orgasm gap at the University of Hawaii, and it is well attended, let me tell you. I spend every opportunity talking about sex so that we as a society can begin to unlearn that shame. I want us to have healthy dialogue to unpack all the toxic messages that we've learned about sex so that we can start having healthy relationships, so that we know what consent looks like, so that we can get through all the icky, sticky combos that make people go, ooh, I don't know what what we're talking about. And by normalizing that in such an open way, the amount of liberation and freedom that it gives others to message me and say, I have a question about this, or what are your resources on that? Or I love what you said about this. I totally experienced that in my marriage or whatnot with my kids. It just opens the door for so much learning and liberation. And I love that about my work. And just very briefly, if you can give one tip to the parents out there. For the parents out there who are having conversations with their children about their child's sexuality, crushes, what they desire, what they're experiencing. I would hope that you know that if they're talking to you about this, that you've done an amazing job to build incredible trust with them. Your child is the expert of their body. They're the expert of their desires. Yes, they may feel confused, but listen to them. Listen to what they're saying. Affirm that they are healthy and beautiful and that you are here to support them. That in itself will not only build a stronger relationship with your child, but also give your child the confidence to move forward in a healthy way in their sexual identity development, and they will ultimately be a happier, healthier person. That was Lady Bits and Leadership founder Sarah Vogel talking to HPR's Stephanie Hahn on why sex education matters. It's Wednesday, and this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. So we now go to this week's Manu Minute with recordings courtesy of Zeno Kanto. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a rare native bird that recently got a new Hawaiian name. 
The Nihoa millerbird is one of only two native bird species found on tiny Nihoa Island off the northeast coast of Kauai. About five inches long, they're mostly drab, olive brown, with thin black bills. They were originally called miller birds because they love to eat large miller moths, but as obligate insectivores, they'll really eat just about any kind of insect, and not much else. If you're lucky enough to ever visit Nihoa Island, they might be best found by listening for their song, which has been described as having a metallic bubbling sound. If they had an original Hawaiian name, it seems to have been lost over time, but they were recently given the name Ululu, which means growing things, with the hope that its small population of less than a thousand birds will continue to grow. Unfortunately, a sister subspecies of this bird was once found on Lei San Island, but was driven to extinction by 1923 after the introduction of European rabbits. A small number of Ululu were recently moved from Nihoa to Lei San Island to hopefully improve the survival of the species and also fill a gap in Lei San's ecosystem that was once filled by the now extinct Lei San Miller bird. These new arrivals have been given the name Ululu Niao and seem to be doing well. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, providing tile, mosaic murals, and planters for more than 25 years. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about hydroflow permeable pavers designed to absorb rainwater and reduce runoff. are all out of time now, but tomorrow we plan to talk soccer, but it's not the Women's World Cup. We head out to the Pacific. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation wherever you find your podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.